two or three years from now, the level of frictionless video conferencing experience that you and I have is going to feel nothing like today. Welcome to Uptech Report. This is our Founders Journey series. I'm joined here by Luke Freiler, and he is the CEO of Center Code. This is part two of our discussion. Um, definitely check out our first part where he dives a little bit deeper into their platform and managed service for those who want to connect their companies to their customers. Those who are running beta tests, delta tests, and you just want to be able to do it a lot better, faster. There's a really cool thing what they're doing with their uh, new bot that they're launching soon. So definitely listen to part one. But this section, I want to hear more, Luke, on your story, your journey. 20 years, 19, 20 years coming up. How did you get to where you are today with Center Code? Yeah. Um, again, so so many stories to tell, but but the favorite that it kind of starts with is is when we decided to do this. Um, you know, we started in, in two thousand one, which is you know a, a masochistic time to begin a company in the tech space. Um, nobody had any faith in technology. We were all, you know, on the verge of going back to to sticks and and twigs. Um, but I, I had this idea. I, I fell in love with it. I saw it as an opportunity that I could build something great around. It just seemed to check every box. And when I when I had the idea, I had a great job. I was you know very well paid for my age, and and this was crazy. It, it was nuts to to leave that company, which was Ericsson, fantastic company. Um, and I had the idea, and I was selling some friends on it. And it was actually became real when I was I was dating this girl and it was getting serious. We were, you know, a year and a half or so into our relationship and it was time to meet her parents. And, and we were going to fly up to Northern California and, and meet her parents. And we did so. And her dad uh, and I met and we got to talking the usual, you know, what do you do? And I, I told him about this and, and he fell in love with it. And he said, look, I would be happy to fund your, your living expenses while you build it and, and we'll turn this into a company. And, wow. and keep in mind, I was about 20 at the time. So very young, very naive. And I, I loved it. And I, you know, the idea was I, I could leave my company and, and go do this. So I convinced at the time two guys uh, that worked for me, guys, uh, Nathan and Neil, two of my best friends. And I convinced them, uh, they were on my team. I convinced them, hey, let, let's go do this thing and, and make it real. This guy's gonna pay for it, it's gonna be amazing. And I convinced them to, to leave their jobs and do this. So the three of us and this gal I was dating um, got in a U-Haul and we moved to Northern California. And the day after we got there, um, literally, I'm not exaggerating, the day after we got there, uh, she and we're living in a, in a place that her dad funded. Um, she said, hey, can we go for a drive? And I said, yeah, and we go for a drive. And she said, um, this isn't working out. And I said, what's not working out? And she said, this relationship, it's just, it's not working for me. I'm not really happy being up here by my parents. I don't really get along with them. And, you know, she just kind of lost it. And I was like, wait, like this would have been phenomenal information like 72 hours ago, um, you know, before we packed the U.S. Before I jumped everything and, and moved everything and convinced my friends to quit their jobs and whatnot. So, so we, we broke up and this wasn't a makeup breakup thing. Like we legitimately broke up, never got back together again, but we shared a bed for six months on polar opposite sides of that bed. It was terrible. Um, and, you know, part of the story I left out somewhat deliberately is when you say you're moving to Northern California to start a company, that sounds cool as hell. Like the Bay Area is phenomenal. This was not the Bay Area. So 
Where we moved was a little known place called Crescent City, which is the very tip corner of Northern California, a few miles um, from the Oregon border. And Crescent City is a very interesting place in that it's about 5,000 people, um, which is teeny tiny for a California you know, area. Our, our prior, we came from Orange County, which had 3 million people. Um, this little tiny area had, had you know, just a few thousand people and there was one form of local industry and that was Pelican Bay Prison, um, the most maximum security prison in California, which coincidentally um, employs thousands of people. So there were two demographics in this city. There was prison guards and families of lifers who wanted to be near their, you know, murderous husbands and, and whatnot. Um, and those are two demographics that do not get along. They, they hate each other. And therefore this entire city was like twin peaks, like awkward, terrible. And we're young 20 somethings looking to build a business. And, you know, I, I we, we lived in, ecosystem. We, we lived in what would otherwise be an incredible place. This house that we lived in, um, first of all, we, he paid $40,000 for this house, which by California rates is, you know, a, a tenth of a tenth of what you pay for, for a house here now. Um, but he, so he bought this and we could walk to the ocean in three different directions and be there in two blocks. Like we were on a peninsula in the ocean. It was incredible. But for me, that meant, and again, not exaggerating, every night I would just walk to the ocean and just scream at it and then come home. Um, and, and that was like how I got it out. Like I would just alone walk to the ocean, scream. Very therapeutic. Nobody could hear anything, you know, huge waves hitting sandy shores or rocky shores. And, and I did that every single day. And on top of that, it rained every single day for six months, um, every day. And, and that's, you know, they, they, we had a redwood tree in our front yard. It was just like you, you, rain, you know, creates that. But it, so it was beautiful, but it was just a horrible place. Um, so, so, yeah, we had six months of, of that, living with her, trying to build this thing. Um, as soon as she broke up with me, which was literally a day in, her father lost all interest in us. Um, so I actually called back, you know, tail between my legs to Erickson and said, hey, can I have my job back sort of part-time remote? I'll fly down you know, and, and we'll, we'll figure it out. And my, my boss at the time took me up on it. He, he let me do it. So that shifted to me having this sort of weird remote part-time job while building this company with my friends who knew exactly what was going on. And it was just a nightmare. Um, so eventually we gave up after six months, we gave up and I went and, and begged for my job at Ericsson back. And, and I got my two guys with me and all three of us went back and we pretended it never happened. Um, and, and then about six months or I don't know, maybe a year later, I forget how long, um, it was very clear that that division of Ericsson was eventually going to probably go away. It wasn't succeeding. Um, Ericsson was an enterprise company that was sort of dipping their toe in this kind of commercial, almost consumer space. So it was, it was kind of awkward for them at the time and we knew it was going away. So I convinced the boss that, that rehired me. Um, I, I basically said, look, man, I'm, I'm an engineer. I can build a product. That's what I care about but I don't know anything about business. I, I don't know anything about sales. I, I'm, I'm clueless about that stuff. So I would love to have you as my gray hair um, to, to come and start this thing with me. And, and he and I had gotten along very well. He kind of turned into a little bit of a, a father figure for me at the company and he did it. He, he left, we all left. And, and ultimately, you know, we started the company together. He was the CEO, I was the CTO. And then my two engineers were, were engineers initially. 
Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a great time. So, and, you know, given the time we bootstrapped it, we didn't raise any capital. We just lived on, you know, the cheapest burritos possible, um, you know, true ramen lifestyle. Um, and, and we, we made it happen. It was, it was a lot of fun. How many, how many years did you bootstrap and just kept natural growth? Have you always bootstrapped? Did you ever get No, uh, so, so we've actually raised capital twice and we have a very unique um, process of raising capital in that we don't look for it and we ignore most of it. Um, and, and once in a while, something weird happens. So the, you know, we, we actually bootstrapped for about 15 years and we were very much sort of a, a boutique company. We were doing okay. We were, you know, obviously paying ourselves and, and whatnot pretty well, but we weren't really growing. And that really could be attributed to the different levels of ambition between me and, and that other co-founder, um, this guy named Rich. He had a background that was in finance, in, in sort of operations, very, very conservative um, leader. Whereas I was, you know, the, the crazy, enthusiastic kind of visionary wanted to go solve, you know, all of technology so at a certain point and much longer, interesting story, we, we decided that we would swap, well, not swap roles, but shift roles. And I would take over CEO. He would move into a finance and ops position. One of my original founders would take over CTO. So there's a little bit of, of musical chairs, but um, by shifting that stuff around, I then got much more aggressive and we started to grow. And, and, you know, for me, the initial thing, which is a whole 12 podcast episodes on its own was sort of my early discovery and love of, of marketing as a, as a hobby. And uh, that was what allowed us to, to grow the company. And then at a certain point, things were getting really good. And I was standing outside of our office in, in Laguna Hills and I was waiting for my CTO to, to come down to lunch. And again, best friend, good, good guy waiting for him. And this guy walks up to me, older guy. Um, I shouldn't say that cause he might hear this um, late fifties, maybe. Uh, he, he came up to me and said, Hey, you and your buddy are driving much nicer cars nowadays. What's going on upstairs? And I didn't know this guy, total stranger. And I said, well, you know, it's sort of a coincidence. I, I had a goal that if we hit a certain number of quarters of growth under my reign, then I would go buy a Tesla. And this was when Teslas were brand new, the, the S model, the original. And, and I, I hit those goals and then I kept doing it for another year. And, and I went and bought a Tesla um, and at the time, Teslas were hard to get. I was on a waiting list for nine months. It was a pain in the ass. They delayed it like over and over again. Um, so I bought this Tesla. Well, the day I got it, my CTO fell in love with it and he went to order one and they just happened to have one sitting there, um, that somebody hadn't picked up and they offered it to him and he just drove it home. Uh, yeah, and, and, and in any other world, we would have never bought matching cars or colors, but it just happened to be the same one I waited nine months for. So people from the outside looking in are looking at this and going, oh, cute. These co-founders bought matching cars. How cute. Like, no, it was, he, he stole my idea. Um, so, so anyway, I, I told him that story and, I, it, and he really latched into the we're doing well part. And he said, oh, I, I run a software fund. Why don't we go to lunch sometime? Maybe there's a real, you know, something to happen here. And I, I did not take it seriously. I kind of blew it off, but, you know, free lunch. Um, we, we walked down to the, the sports bar at the end of our little campus and, and we ate. And by the end of lunch, he said, I'd love to put some money into this. And it was interesting because we were not actually their target. They do work exclusively in B2B software, which, which does fit us. But they really look for distressed companies and do sort of acquisitions, turn them around and, and resell them. Um, oh, doing really so, well. <laughs> so they find people who are in trouble 
and and they do full acquisitions. They they don't do minority investments like like we were potentially interested in. Again, we weren't looking for money in any way. This was not in our cards. Um, you know, because because in our past there was two times we considered raising money: two thousand one, bad idea, and then two thousand nine, bad idea. Um, so we just sort of figured raising money was cursed for us, and and we would just do it our our own way. But uh, yeah, so I, I basically told him, look, um, I'm interested, but the you know the the rule is this, this has to be quick and it can't consume a lot of my time. You know, I, I happen to know that raising money and running a company at the same time is an incredibly challenging endeavor. And frankly, I'm not that good. So um, I, I wanted to, to focus on the company. I was really happy with where it's going. And, and he promised me that it would be painless and more neighbors and it'd be easy. And he was right. It was. And to this day, we have a phenomenal relationship with him and his firm. And, and you know, we, we've done well under them. Um, so, so we raised capital there. Then again, um, while we were doing that, someone else met us, um, the guy, a guy who runs a firm. So that, that firm, just to throw their name out there, is Parallax Capital. Awesome dudes. Um, another guy who ran a firm out of New York uh, named Argentum uh, was an old friend of, of the guy, Jim, who, who ran the first firm. And he met me during this process and he wanted in. He wanted to buy a piece too. And I wasn't willing to, to sell more. Um, I wanted to get a valuation up if I was going to do it again. So I, I told him no. Um, he tracked me for a few years and, and about four years later, um, last year, actually, he reached out again and, and offered again. And at first I said, no, I wasn't interested. And, and he pushed. And I will tell you, this is amazing. The thing he said that got me over, um, because I was happy, we were doing well, we had cash in the bank, um, things are good. The thing he said that, that got me was, hey, man, you don't have any idea what the economy looks like next year. Who knows what will happen? And uh, and it kind of kept me up at night because I definitely, you know, I, I wasn't really a fan of the political situation that was going on over the last four years. And, and you know, I, I was kind of nervous that anything could happen. And I've never concerned myself with, with macroeconomics in, in that way. But it was, you know, as you grow and have more mouths to feed, you think more about that stuff. And, and he basically convinced me that, that a cushion would be nice and that the valuation, you know, could be pretty strong. And he was damn right. <laughs> um, you know, I have to thank him for that because I can say that, that for, for COVID times, we went in with plenty of cash in the bank and, and we were in a better situation than a lot of other companies. Now, that doesn't mean COVID hasn't been rough and, and didn't have to change targets and everything else and, and have to rethink the world, but it could have been worse, basically. It could have been a hell of a lot worse. Um, you know, so many companies got, got completely thrown asunder. Um, we didn't. So that's good. It's it almost seems fortuitous in several places that certain things happen. You meet the right people, which is just a, it, you can't say that's going to happen to anybody. Like I'm going to start a, a company. Yeah, and this is what's going to happen to me. The, the unfortunate fact that it sucks to say it to entrepreneurs, but it's true. But the best time to get money is when you don't need it. Um, and that sucks, man. Like having been there in times in 2008 and whatnot, where everything's rough, um, you know, everybody, when you, you talk to VCs and whatnot, and you're not ready yet, you think you are, they think you're not. Um, you know, they're basically telling me, well, if you go get 12 quarters of growth, give us a call. And I'm, you know, at the time your, your entire attitude is, man, if I have 12 quarters of growth, I don't need you screw off. Um, and, you know, so, so for me, I, I never looked forward to, to going out and finding money because, Again, we've only looked for money in really inopportune times. Um, it, it is amazing we're not looking for money now. It kind of fits our theme. Um, very happy we're not. But uh, yeah, it, it is definitely, you know, I, I there's challenges in, in bootstrapping I, all day long. But 
it, it's got some really nice benefits as well. So there's, I can already see what you shared there, several points of ups and downs and lows and, and highs. It's a hard question if you're, if you're open for it. Uh, what was the most difficult time in the past 20 years? And what was the lesson you learned from that? <laughs> Getting dumped the day after I moved 900 miles to start a company was pretty rough. Um, yeah, that, that was, that was very difficult. Um, and you know, the, the lessons there, no one else should be dumb enough to have to learn is, you know, I just, I did, I took some risks, uh, that I don't know any other entrepreneur that has taken those same risks. So it's, it's not a great, it's not a universal warning. Let's put it that way. Um, that was a big one. The, the other thing is, and it's been a challenge all along, is, is just, it re, and it's so cliche, but it really does come down to, to talent and knowing what you don't know. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell a story that I love to death and it's absolutely true, but there's so much to, to unpack from it. And I've spent years of my life thinking about it. When we started this company, um, I knew what we wanted to be. We wanted to be a software company. Um, we created our services division out of market demand. And it turned out to be a really good choice for a lot of reasons. But, but at the end of the day, I, I think of myself as an engineer who wants to build things and, and software happens to be my thing. It's what I know. So, so I wanted to build software and I wanted this to be um, a, a product that we would just sell online. People would buy it, you know, just, you know, early SaaS before SaaS was a thing. So I was thinking about building this platform and, and I was expecting to sell it for a couple hundred bucks a month. That was my idea back when we started. And I threw up a, a really simple, crappy website when we were just starting the company to kind of advertise what we were doing to the world and just make sure we're in Google and whatnot. And the first company to call us was, was Sun Microsystems, which at the time was an enormous company, um, you know, kind of owned the Unix market to some degree and, and was, was huge. Um, they have since gotten bought by Oracle and, and absorbed into that. But at the time, they were an enormous entity. And they called us and, and wanted to learn about our platform and, and potentially buy it. And I'm thinking a couple hundred bucks a month here is, is my price point. Well, I wasn't comfortable going into that call. They weren't my target market. I was thinking the many, many, many you know SMBs. Well, I did a smart thing in that I got a guy who had many, many years of experience in sales, in enterprise sales, to, to join the call with me. He was someone I had worked with at... Um, at Samsung. And he had spent 30 years at IBM in executive, you know, up to the highest levels of executive sales positions. And I, I told him about this call and I get him on the call. And we hadn't really gone in depth as to what we were going to do. We were playing it by ear. And, and we get to the commercial discussion and, and Sun you know, says, well, what's it cost? And again, in my mind, it, and actually I left out an important part. I spent the first 15 minutes of this call trying to talk them out of buying it. Um, I, I was overwhelmed. I was intimidated. I was like 21. And I, I'm basically, I'm telling them all the reasons they shouldn't buy it. I'm literally saying, hey guys, the software's not done yet. We're still building it. And they were like, well, that's awesome. We can help influence the roadmap. We can take part in that. That's great. Like I'm objecting to everything I can and they're objecting to my objections. Um, so we get to the commercial discussion and they say, what does it cost? And again, in my mind, a few hundred bucks a month. And the guy I brought on the call, literally, I'm not exaggerating anyway. He said, um, it's $300,000 and 60,000 a year in for support after that straight faced. And they said, that sounds fair. We can do that. Um, and, and that was it. It, it started it. And wow. you know, I, I, we would be on an entirely different trajectory if I had not brought in someone who knew what he was doing. Um, and if I had handled it my way and, and I learned an enormous amount from him. Um, you know, he, he's, he's an awesome guy. Um, so 
So yeah, um, building that, that was, having the right talent is yeah. So so that's one that that I had I handled that differently, uh, we might not be talking right now. Um, <laughs> who knows where I would be at this point? But uh, yeah, and Sun was a, an incredible customer for for you know nearly a decade, um, and and it was great. For for that whole concept of building the right team that allows the the growth for to happen. What have you seen are, are common mistakes one could make when it comes to hiring? Uh, friends, you know, for me, it, it's worked out more often than it hasn't, I will admit. Um, but it's, it's created challenges and problems and, and difficult conversations. Uh, you know, the bigger you get, the less you want to do that. Um, even worse than that is, is hiring relationships. You know, if you've got some people and, and unfortunately, as you grow, they just naturally form. I mean, in the modern work environment, you know, your social network is more office than anything else in, in our world. So, so they form, but that's definitely been tough trying to keep things professional has, has been really uh, a big challenge because you start off as, as a family. Like you just, you put so much time and energy and you're all aligned with a passion. And as you grow, um, that family grows and everything gets more complicated. So, so that's, that's probably the, the best answer I have for that is, um, you know, find the right talent, but it, it's, it's challenging to hire strangers when you're very small, but the perspective they bring is, is pretty amazing. Um, the other thing that, that I kind of tell everyone is, there are no silver bullets in business, at least that I've experienced, or at least nothing predictable, right? Yeah, you may have heard the adage of like, it's, it's you can work to become a, a millionaire, but you can't work to become a billionaire. Like you, you can't be, you can be smart enough to be a millionaire. You, you can't be smart enough to be a billionaire. Some amount of luck has to happen numerous times. Um, and and I, I very much believe that. I believe a lot of people expect this one thing is gonna have this enormous impact and change everything. And that's not what it is. It's about constantly recalibrating and dialing things in and just getting better and learning and willing to admit your mistakes and willing to roll with the punches. And I, I think there's a lot of success gained from those things. Um, you can become, like I said, you can just win lotto and become you know, pretty wealthy, but you can't rely on that. Um, and, and relying on, on things like, you know, again, silver bullets is, is a mistake I've seen way too many times. It's, you said you took up earlier uh, marketing as a hobby. Yes. And, and I find that interesting statement. So I'm curious on from the marketing side, like what what's one of the biggest uh, tactics that had worked or, or takeaways over the years that have, have helped you grow and scale? Easy. Uh, li literally, my shower thoughts this morning were, should I write a book about my experience in marketing? Only because uh, not that I... And I'll take you down a weird journey I didn't plan to go down. But the reason I was having that thought is not because I think our marketing has been immensely successful and we've turned into a bajillion dollar company. It's because I think our approach to marketing got us over some early humps that I think a lot of people run into and don't know what to do. So I don't think our approach to marketing is what makes somebody a $50 million company. But the tricks I learned, I think, could take someone from a one or two to a five or 10 pretty reasonably predictable, which... Again, I don't think there's enough content out there that addresses that middle point where things really get challenging. I think everything that I've read, at least, is you know the Warren Buffetts of the world that are very inspirational, um, or, or the people that are pretending the Warren Buffetts of the world, but they're very inspirational, but they're not helping you through some of those initial challenges. It's much more big picture. So the, the short version, and again, story time. Um, early story time. on, as I took over CEO, um, we were doing no marketing. Um, the, the guy that I was raving about earlier, who's awesome in sales, um, sales was his background. And, and he was one of those salespeople that had never really 
done a lot in the marketing space. So because he was my leader in that area and there was a big hole in marketing, um, we were kind of cold calling and very traditional sales. Well, obviously I, I have a love of the internet and what it enables. And I was convinced, you know, as this engineer CTO, I was convinced that there must be a better way. And, and, and this is again, true story. Um, it happened exactly like this. I was sitting in my office one night at about seven o'clock and I, and this is, you know, a decade ago probably, but, but I was very interested in how we could theoretically leverage Twitter to better our company. And, and Twitter was a relatively new idea and it was kind of the new hotness, but it was very clear to me that it worked very well in a consumer capacity. But the idea of B2B software and targeting the right people there, it, it wasn't common then. It was a brand new thing. So I did what everybody does and I went and I Googled, you know, leveraging Twitter and B2B or something like that. And I got this, this ebook. I, I, you know, filled out this form, downloaded this ebook, literally called, you know, leveraging Twitter in the B2B environment. And for whatever reason, and this is a weird part of the story, but for some reason I like to tell it, I decided to print that book. Like at seven o'clock, I'm tired. I wanted to lay on my couch in my office and I was just going to print it. And as it was printing, my phone rings. And I picked up the phone, which even to this point, I have no idea why I did because I never answered the phone, but I picked up the phone and this guy says, hi, uh, my name is whatever. I just, I, I know you, I saw you just downloaded this book and I was thinking maybe I could answer your questions um, and save you some time in reading. And he said, and if you, if you like what I have to say, then, then maybe you give me a few minutes to tell you about what we do. And I, Again, I don't know why I was sort of feeling generous. It was interesting. And I, I said, sure, it was top of mind, right? And I said, okay, what, what do you do? Uh, or I'm sorry, he, we, we walked through sort of Twitter and B2B and some things. And, and then I got to the, you know, he said, do you mind if I tell you what? And of course, you know, you're going to be polite. I said, yeah. So he said, well, what we do is the process you just went through. And I said, okay, what does that mean? He said, well, here's what happened. You had a problem. You had a question. You went to in the internet to Google to solve that problem. You typed it in. We worked really hard to be the answer to that problem. It didn't look like that to you, but you saw our book and, and you downloaded it. Well, you thought you were getting that book for free, but you really weren't. You, you gave us your contact information as a currency and you traded that contact information for that book that we worked really hard to write. And then as soon as you did that, I got a notice that said, hey, there's a new lead that's thinking about what we do, call them. And he said, yeah, this whole thing, it's called inbound marketing and we are HubSpot. And... Um, this is what we do. And, and this is, you know, an interesting uh, way you can grow your business. And he, he gave me some, some tips that just have stuck with me the whole time of, you know, you need to think of your company as a publisher and, and don't worry about secret sauce, publish everything, everything you learn, every problem you solve, produce content. You know, you don't have to worry about gaming the system, just produce good content and the system will work. It'll bring people to you. And aside from that, I had had an interesting call with someone, uh, a VC out of the UK, who purely focused on investing in bootstrap companies, bootstrap tech companies. And he said to me, hey, um, what you need to do is go hire a kid straight out of college with a marketing degree who's never had a budget before and doesn't know he's supposed to get one. And you need to set them on, you know, wild online and just let them go out and, and build awareness that way. And at the time, even that sounded crazy and, and it was a random call, but, but all of a sudden I put these two ideas in my mind. If I just need to find someone, one role, I can afford one cheap person to just start building content for us and, and put up these landing pages and, and do this stuff. And, and I did that. And the first guy I hired didn't work out. It was a train wreck. The second guy I hired was awesome. 
Um, and, and we did that and we started working together to collaborate on building this content and it completely changed the company. You know, it turned it from, yeah, we had a website and we got one or two sort of bluebird good leads a month and that was it. And within a couple months of doing this, we were getting like five a day. Um, and, and it was just a different world. And, and it really was, and it all just makes sense. People have problems. Everybody goes to Google for your solution. It's just a ubiquitous thing. So it made sense to me and I fell in love with it and I started investing an enormous amount of time into it and I brought a resource on and we started collaborating and he was kind of my right hand at this stuff and, and that, that really did prop up the company and became our, our primary channel um, for, for awareness and lead gen to this day. What would you say in today's world now everyone, because of COVID, like there's no conferences, there's no trade shows, and everyone's digital and the amount of content that's being created, yeah. there's so much distraction. I, what, do you, what do you see as then the, the challenge then going forward? How do you overcome that? Yeah, I mean, the, the challenge is obvious. And, and we, you know, I, I, did, um, I did another a webinar early this week for another company, someone that we've done off and on over the years. And they have an awesome market and they have an awesome presence and reputation. And I noticed that they had like a third of the usual attendees to that webinar. And, you know, similar topic. I don't think it was the topic. I think people are just saturated. And, you know, right now I'm, I'm very deep in 2021 planning. And of course we're thinking, okay, well, we're not probably expanding to Europe and we're not going to travel to meet new customers and we're not going to, host our road shows and we're probably not going to have a physical conference this year. Um, and it's like, check, 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 check. And at the end of the day, you're like webinar. And, and that sounded good because it's cheap and it's easy. And like, they've been good for us in the past. They've been very valuable. But now that I'm seeing like really proven organizations that are good at this are even having trouble getting people to, to show up, I'm, I'm concerned. Um, so, you know, unfortunately the short answer is I don't have the answer yet. Maybe we do this again in a few weeks. <laughs> Um, we, you know, I, I'll give you the answer and it's, it's a non-answer, but we're all going to have to get creative. Mm -hmm. And for us, that's exciting to me. I like okay. having to get creative and, and do weird things and, and do different things. Um, you know, I, I got an invite a couple days ago for this like digital lunch thing. It was another executive setting up to have a digital lunch. And, and what I thought it was, is I was like, oh, is somebody like sparking these and they kind of pay for lunch and you both eat lunch together. And, and I was like, that's actually kind of neat. I would do that. And then I realized, no, it just sets a meeting on account. <laughs> so I, I will say there has to be incredible opportunity out there to help companies solve these problems and whatnot. Like I'll tell you, one of the challenges we're working with, it's a dumb challenge in the grand scheme of scene, but it's a grand scheme of things, but it's important to us is like our company culture is, and this is going to sound stupid, but but we're very party based. Like we we have a lot of really incredible parties. At least once a quarter, we try to do some sort of event. At least once or twice a year, we do something awesome, and we do creative, weird things, and we have fun with it. Um, and this year, we can't, and it's killing us. Like we can't, and you know, to the point where we had worked something out that we thought was going to be a great socially distanced, really unique party, and even that's illegal as of this week. Like we can't even do that one. So. So we started looking online and there are amazing businesses that host virtual parties and do really creative, cool, inexpensive things. And these companies didn't need to exist a year ago. You know, nobody would have had their Christmas party on Zoom if they could avoid it. Um, but it is the hand we're, we've been given. And you know, I've, I've said it before, it, talking to a lot of peers and whatnot, you know, COVID is terrible. People are dying. Like that it, you know, doesn't need to be said at this point. 
but it is forcing all of us to think differently. It is forcing us to be more creative. It is forcing so many more interesting relationships to develop and, and new things to happen. It's going to change the way that we do do business moving forward. And to me, I like new and weird and change. And, you know, I also like the fact that we are all sharing this experience, like never in our lives that has that happened to where we've all had a global experience. Like we could all talk about 9-11 when that happened. That was horrible too, but it wasn't nearly as global. It wasn't nearly as extended. It wasn't, you know, th this is a whole different level of terrible. Um, and, you know, in some ways, terrible's brought us together and made us creative. And I love that. That's cool. And, and on top of that, I, I'm going to stop talking soon, I promise. On top of that, technology is inarguably the hero of COVID. Like, you know, the fact it, remote school sucks. We all think remote school sucks, but we can do it. Like, you know, our, our kids can continue to be educated without getting sick. Like that in itself is a major accomplishment. It's, it's certainly a glass half full look at it, but it's also, you know, I was thinking yesterday about how, you know, Zoom is awesome. They're also a customer of mine. So I have a lot of love for them, but this immense rise is going to put so much new R&D into this type of meeting. And two or three years from now, the level of frictionless video conferencing experience that you and I have is going to feel nothing like today. Like it's just going to get fierce and competitive and it's going to produce amazing products that are going to be great. And, and that, you know, frankly, while I did like traveling in some respects for business, I would spend two days of travel for four hours of meeting at most and lose a good chunk of my life. That doesn't happen anymore. Like, you know, and, and it's going to be real hard to give this up in some ways. So, so yeah, it's a non-answer. I wish I had the magic bullet, but I think people are going to have to get a lot more creative. They're going to have to get a lot more human. I mean, we're all experiencing each other in our own homes and environments, and, and there's just so much we can do with that. That's going to be really cool. So I'm looking forward to all the ideas that come out of it. Um, uh, last question for sure. you, Luke. What kind of tech innovations do you predict we will see then in the near term uh next year or so because of this environment you've already mentioned one especially when it comes to, to to video video calls but even the long term five ten years from now any what do you predict we'll see um i, I mean keep in mind that that i am assuming that we're not going to be living in covid for you know too long um what i'm what I'm assuming is that the world is going to go back to normal. I, I don't know if it's, you know, six months or 24 months, but, but it's going to go back to normal, meaning we can go out to dinner again. But I think we're going to get hooked on some of these things. I, I think we're going to get hooked on video conferencing in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. So it, it's going to change some things. I think it's going to make education very different and hopefully much better. I think education is one of those areas that has been slow to adopt a lot of technology for a lot of reasons. They just don't have a choice right now. So trial by fire. Um, I, I think technology is going to really um, invade education. Uh, government, I think, is going to have, I mean, the, the mail-in balloting and all that stuff, like, you know, I, I think we're just going to find better ways to engage with the government and, in a way that is going to be very interesting. Again, just technology being invasive. Um, you know, you and I briefly touched on this the, the first few moments we met, but I'm a big fan of, of virtual reality and augmented reality. I think those are, are spaces that have a lot of opportunity. I think they're in their absolute infancy right now. Like we're barely, barely scratching the surface. Like maybe there's, you know, half a billion dollars in R&D in those spaces so far. 
that's going to go crazy. And we're going to start to see some really, really neat things there. And that's going to open up just entirely new ways to engage with people to, you know, the, the one I think I mentioned to you that is, is very true. And most people outside our little space don't see it. But for me, VR was the savior of exercise. You know, we, we do, my wife and I both use VR for fitness and there are incredible fitness programs that, that happen exclusively in VR and frankly are way more exciting than walking my neighborhood for the 12,000th time, um, which is what I've done during COVID as well. So, um, or what I was doing before I got bored of it. So yeah, I, I think virtual reality is one that, that is gonna change things, not just in gaming. I think, you know, I, I think that was one of the smart things that Facebook saw in picking up Oculus was they weren't buying a gaming company. They were buying a new technology platform that could go in any direction they, you know, they wanted it to. So they may not have been the best one to buy it in many people's opinions, um, I'm actually pretty indifferent, but um, I, I do think that they saw the vision of, of where that could go. So that's a big one for me. Um, Luke, I really appreciate the the lessons learned here, the story, this journey that you've been on. There, there's so much insight. I know we could probably talk for another three hours and there'd be dozens more stories. So thank you, though, for, for sharing this. This has been awesome, Luke. Happy to, man. It was great to meet you, Alex. And, you know, it's, it's a good time. I'd be happy to do this anytime. All right, for those that want to learn more, definitely check out part one of our conversation to hear more about CenterCode or go to uh, centercode.com to, uh, to check out their platform and their managed services. Um, thanks again for joining us on this founder's journey of Uptech. Our sponsor for today's episode is TerraLeap. If your company wants to learn how to better leverage the power of video to increase your sales and marketing results, head over to TerraLeap.io and learn about the new product customer stories. Thanks so much, and we'll see you guys next time. That concludes the audio version of this episode. To see the original and more, visit our Uptech Report YouTube channel. If you know a tech company we should interview, you can nominate them at uptechreport.com. Or if you just prefer to listen, make sure you're subscribed to this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. Mm -hmm.